This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Several months ago, I found myself in a deeply unsettling situation. It was a typical evening, and I was making my way home after a long day's work in the bustling city. My house, nestled in the suburbs, lay a considerable distance from the city, necessitating an hour-long drive every night after my 10 p.m. shift. The journey, primarily through desolate roads once outside the urban sprawl, was usually uneventful, albeit time-consuming. On this particular night, I felt unusually weary, the kind of fatigue that doesn't stem from any specific cause but simply accumulates over a day. I was about half an hour from home, cruising along a solitary, single-lane highway, when my attention was jolted awake by an unexpected obstruction in the road. Under the dim glow of the streetlights, I could vaguely discern something blocking my path. I cautiously eased onto the brakes, the fog momentarily obscuring my view. As I inched closer, the fog lifted, revealing a massive tree sprawled across the entire road. Confusion set in. There had been no recent storms or strong winds, and the road had been clear when I left in the morning. Leaving my car running but in park, I stepped out to investigate. The surrounding area showed no signs of other fallen trees or damage. Approaching the tree, I realized it stretched from one forest edge to the other, leaving no room to pass. The oddity of the situation began to irk me, especially when I considered the nearest detour was a 15-minute drive back, adding an hour to my already long journey. Contemplating calling for help, I stood by the tree, lost in thought. That's when a light suddenly pierced through the branches from the other side. It wasn't an approaching vehicle. The car must have been there already, its lights only now flicking on. As I tried to peer through the foliage, the sound of a car door opening and closing reached me, followed by footsteps. Hello? I called out, attempting to alleviate the tension. A mumble came in response, but it seemed unrelated to my greeting. I assumed the other person was equally frustrated with the roadblock. Then the branches began to move, rustling as a figure clambered over the tree. I instinctively retreated towards my car. The figure, a man with a short beard and buzz cut, dressed in a thick jacket, landed on my side of the road. His approach was silent, his face expressionless. I hurried into my car, my instincts screaming danger. The man quickened his pace, reaching my window just as I closed the door. He stared blankly at me, knocking on the glass without a word. What do you need? I asked, my voice tinged with fear. He continued to knock, now more aggressively, his fists pounding against the window. In a panic, I threw the car into reverse, a dull thud sounding as the door latch presumably tore from his grasp. That sound confirmed my worst fears. I spun the car around and sped off, too focused to even glance in the rearview mirror. Once I reached the bypass, I stopped to report the incident. Predictably, the man and his car were gone when authorities arrived. I later learned that the tree had been deliberately cut down an act that made the evening news due to its seemingly malicious intent. 
whether the strange man was responsible remained a mystery. Since that night, I haven't experienced anything similar on that route. But every evening as I drive home, even on my most exhausted days, I find myself wide awake, alert, and watchful, haunted by the memory of that eerie encounter on the road. I was 29 years old when this harrowing incident unfolded. It was a chilly winter evening, and my husband and I had made plans to visit his parents' house outside the city, where we intended to stay for a few weeks. Given my husband's late work hours, we decided it would be better for me to set out with our five-year-old daughter earlier in the day, while he would follow a couple of hours later. As we hit the road at around 3 p.m., I couldn't help but feel a sense of confidence that we would reach our destination without any trouble. However, the winter nights came quickly, and by 4.30 p.m., it was already pitch black outside. We were still about an hour and a half away from my in-law's house, and while I didn't have a particular sense of foreboding, as a mother, I couldn't help but have concerns lurking in the back of my mind. We were driving down a desolate back road with no streetlights, and the feeling of utter isolation began to gnaw at me. Nevertheless, I tried to shake off my unease, reassuring myself that we'd soon arrive safely. After all, we had driven this route countless times without incident. Around 30 minutes from our destination, I noticed flashing lights in the distance. Two blinking yellow lights in the middle of the road, which I quickly identified as hazard lights on a car. A sense of dread washed over me as I realized that this car wasn't pulled over to the side, but was blocking the road entirely. I brought the car to a stop about 80 to 100 feet away from the stranded vehicle, trying to decide what to do. One thing I was certain of was that I couldn't risk stopping to help these strangers. Alone in my late 20s with my young daughter, it would have been reckless to put ourselves in harm's way. I made up my mind to call for help once we were safely away. I assumed any woman in my situation would prioritize her and her child's safety above all else. Sitting there, I must have spent what felt like an eternity contemplating my next move. With no cell service, I couldn't reach my husband or father-in-law. Ultimately, I decided to turn around and head back. But it wasn't that simple on a two-lane road. A three-point turn would take too long. Just as I hesitated, my rearview mirror caught sight of shadows rapidly approaching in the moonlight. They were about 30 feet behind my car, and as they drew nearer, I realized they were people, seemingly carrying something. I couldn't stay put any longer. My body reacted before my mind could catch up. I shifted the car into drive and floored the gas pedal. While it wasn't a high-performance vehicle, it responded enough to put distance between us and those approaching figures. As I passed by, more people emerged from the roadside, hurling objects in a desperate attempt to stop me. I sideswiped one of them, and my windshield was struck and cracked by a projectile. I screamed from the impact and my daughter, in turn, began to cry. I reassured her as best I could, but she was just five years old, and my words did little to console her. My sole focus remained on getting us away from those people. Before I knew it, we were pulling up to my in-law's street, which had a guarded entrance. I pressed the button to be allowed in, and the security personnel immediately recognized our distress when they answered. We were granted access, and my father-in-law met me at the driveway armed with a gun. 
I was in tears, and my daughter clung to her grandmother, equally distraught. Once inside, I recounted everything that had transpired. My father-in-law, fiercely protective of us, was visibly angered by the ordeal. He repeatedly inquired if they had followed us to this location, but I couldn't be certain as I hadn't been paying attention to the cars behind us. I was solely focused on reaching the safety of their house. My in-laws were known for their strict security measures, complete with numerous firearms and surveillance cameras both inside and outside their property. They examined the security footage and noticed a car passing by their front gate repeatedly, as if it was circling the area. Realizing the gravity of the situation, we decided to contact the police. Unfortunately, they informed us that they couldn't assist because it wasn't considered an emergency and was beyond their city limits. My father-in-law made it explicitly clear that anyone entering their property would be dealt with if necessary, and the police acknowledged his rights before hanging up. He armed my mother-in-law and me and instructed us to wait inside the house while he went outside to inspect the property. We anxiously watched the security cameras, and as he approached the gate, the car returned. This time, it stopped right at the gate, and two individuals got out. They seemed oblivious to my father-in-law's approach and began pushing the gate. Since we couldn't hear their exchange, all we saw was my father-in-law firing a shot into the air, yelling at them. They hastily retreated to their car and sped away. My husband arrived an hour later, filled with apologies for having allowed me to drive alone. I reassured him that it wasn't his fault and that the outcome would have been the same if he had been with us. The most important thing was that we were safe. A few days later, we learned that there had been several carjackings in the area. Fortunately, no one had been seriously injured during these incidents. I shudder to think about what might have happened had I not spotted those individuals approaching us from behind. I remain grateful that we emerged from that nightmarish situation unharmed, and I've since made it a point never to drive at night without proper protection, whether it's my husband or a firearm. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'll never forget that fateful night. My girlfriend Jessica and I were the adventurous type, always seeking to escape the confines of our home and immerse ourselves in the great outdoors. We had jobs that allowed us to set our own schedules, working for a larger company, but maintaining the freedom to choose when and where we worked. It was this freedom that led us to embark on a camping trip deep into the wilderness, away from the hustle and bustle of city life. As twilight cast long shadows over the rugged terrain, we decided to go camping for about a week. Our destination was a state park known for its untouched beauty and the fact that you could camp there for free without the need for permits or approval. We eagerly packed our bags, eager for the adventure that lay ahead. We drove along a dirt road for what seemed like hours, completely engulfed in the darkness of the night. 
It was then that I made a terrible mistake. I didn't turn on my high beams. I couldn't fathom why I hadn't thought of it earlier, and this oversight would haunt me for the rest of my life. To make matters worse, I was driving too fast for the treacherous terrain, and the combination of factors would lead us down a harrowing path. Suddenly, Jessica let out a blood-curdling scream, and in the faint moonlight we both saw it, a massive fallen tree blocking our path. With little time to react, I slammed on the brakes, desperately hoping we could stop before colliding with the obstacle. But luck was not on our side that night. The sickening crash into the tree sent me into unconsciousness for a few seconds. When I came to, my head was throbbing, and the ringing in my ears was deafening. But my immediate concern was Jessica. In the dim light, I could see that her eyes were closed, and she was unresponsive. Panic set in. My phone became my lifeline as I fumbled to turn on the flashlight, directing its beam toward her. What I saw was beyond anything I could have ever imagined. Blood, stark against her white shirt, stained her chest. It was then that I noticed the branch, about the circumference of a finger, protruding through her chest, a gruesome sight that defied comprehension. It was still attached to the tree, the cruel instrument of our tragedy. Fearful of causing further harm, I refrained from touching her. I reached for my phone to dial 911, but there was no signal in this remote location. Desperation took hold as I considered our limited options. The truck wouldn't start, making escape impossible. My pocket held a small knife, and it became the only glimmer of hope in the darkness. Climbing onto the hood of the truck, I attempted to cut the branch, but the small knife made little progress. Panic surged through me. Precious minutes passed, and Jessica remained unconscious. An agonizing hour ticked by, and I could do nothing but pray. A strange act for someone who had long abandoned faith. I clung to hope, praying for hours in what felt like an eternity. I dared to hope because, miraculously, Jessica was not actively bleeding during that hour. The branch had missed her heart, offering a slim chance of survival. I checked her pulse. It was weak, but it persisted. All I could do was wait for help that seemed impossibly distant. Then, like an answer to my prayers or a stroke of luck, I saw headlights approaching from behind us. My heart raced as I leaped out of the truck, screaming and waving frantically. The driver pulled up behind us and rolled down his window, demanding to know what was wrong. I rushed to explain our dire situation, stammering through the details. It took a moment for him to grasp the gravity of the situation. He cursed under his breath and shone his flashlight on Jessica, confirming our worst fears. Without hesitation, the man retrieved a chainsaw from his truck, and I trembled at the thought of what lay ahead. He began sawing the branch about a foot in front of Jessica's chest, while I covered her with a blanket to protect her from the sawdust. The vibrations of the chainsaw, though unsettling, did not stir her. Finally, the branch was severed, and Jessica was free from her wooden prison. The man and I handled her with the utmost care, placing her gently in the back seat of his truck. I joined him in the passenger seat and he sped down the treacherous mountain road, heading toward help. Jessica remained unconscious throughout the journey. We arrived at an EMT station, a place I had not known existed in this remote wilderness. The medical personnel were surprised by our unexpected arrival. They quickly transferred her to an ambulance, and I climbed in with her. The nearest hospital wasn't too far away, thank goodness, but it lacked a trauma center. 
She needed to be airlifted to a larger city, an hour away by helicopter. The doctor's grim assessment revealed that she had a punctured lung, but her heart remained unscathed. If the branch had been an inch to the left, she would have perished within minutes. Jessica spent almost two weeks in a coma. When she finally awakened, her pain was excruciating, and she struggled to speak due to the trauma in her chest. She endured extensive surgeries to repair the damage. But the possibility of a lung transplant loomed in the future. I was grateful beyond measure that she had survived, and I remained in close contact with the man who had saved her life. Though Jessica still depended on oxygen and experienced breathing difficulties, we attended her monthly appointments, determined to help her on the long road to recovery. We understood that full recovery might be elusive, but we were prepared to face whatever lay ahead together. I asked Jessica to marry me while she was still in the hospital, and she said yes. Regardless of the challenges ahead, I looked forward to spending the rest of our lives together. That night will forever be etched in our memories, and while I struggle to forgive myself for the accident, I am grateful that it's a memory Jessica doesn't have to bear. It was a dark, moonless night, and the clock on my dashboard read 3 a.m. I was exhausted, driving home from a work meeting that had run late. This meeting was a once-a-year ordeal, and it had taken place a grueling eight hours away from my workplace. The long, desolate road stretched out before me, winding through the countryside. Driving through this part of the state was always a dreary experience, as outside the city it was mostly farmland, with miles and miles of plain fields of crops. At least on these barren roads, I could space out and only had to focus on keeping my car on a straight path. As I continued on my journey, seemingly endless fields of crops blurred by in the darkness. Then, out of nowhere, I saw a massive gap in the crops to the right of the road. It was as if a part of the field had been torn away, revealing a car wedged deep into the crops. It looked like the vehicle had careened off the road and became hopelessly entangled. This sight was unexpected, and I couldn't quite understand how driving into a field of crops could be all that harmful. It certainly didn't seem serious enough for me to call for help, especially since there was still cell service out here. The car was also eerily silent, its engine off, which led me to believe that the driver had already been picked up or had walked away from the scene. I continued driving, putting the peculiar sight behind me, just a minute or two down the road, I noticed a set of headlights approaching in front of me. As I drew closer, it became apparent that the vehicle ahead was moving at an exceptionally slow pace. I had to swerve into the other lane to pass it. The speed limit on this highway was 80 miles per hour, but the car in front of me couldn't have been going more than 25 miles per hour. It was a dangerous pace for such a late hour. After I passed the sluggish vehicle, I expected it to speed up and disappear into the distance. Instead, to my astonishment, it merged into the oncoming traffic lane and pulled up alongside my car. I turned my gaze to the driver's side window and was met with a chilling sight. A man, appearing to be in his mid-forties with long, disheveled hair and an unkempt beard, was staring directly into my eyes. What was unsettling was that he didn't seem angry. Instead, he wore a faint, ominous smirk. Feeling my nerves fray, I shifted my focus back to the road, 
hoping that the bizarre encounter would end there. However, the car beside me abruptly sped up, swerving in front of me and slamming on its brakes. I had to react quickly to avoid a collision, and I too slammed on my brakes, skidding to a halt behind the strange car. It then maneuvered to block both lanes of the road, leaving me trapped. I sat there in shock, about fifteen feet behind the mysterious car, unable to comprehend the severity of the situation. The man wasted no time, jumping out of his car and sprinting directly toward me. In one hand, he brandished a gun, and he now had a hood pulled over his head. Panic surged through me as I realized the danger I was in. With no time to spare, I floored the gas pedal, desperately trying to escape. My car lurched forward, but for a terrifying moment, it felt as though it wouldn't respond. Panic clawed at my throat and a wave of terror coursed through me as I imagined the horrors that could await me. Had the other car I'd seen earlier in the crops fallen victim to this menacing stranger as well? Suddenly, my wheels found traction, and I was able to swerve my car out of the field and onto the other side of the road. In the distance, a single gunshot echoed, a chilling reminder of the danger I had narrowly escaped. My heart pounded as I sped away from that horrifying encounter. I dialed 911, my voice trembling, and provided every detail of what had just transpired. I also mentioned the car I had seen earlier, wedged in the field of crops. Despite the police's efforts, the man who had tried to stop me on that desolate road was never found. They managed to locate the other car, but it was empty, with no signs of the driver. It was as if they had abruptly veered off the road, become trapped, and then vanished without a trace. The eerie similarity between their situation and what could have happened to me sent shivers down my spine. If I had become stuck in that field, the other person in that car might not have been the only one to disappear that fateful night. I really wasn't planning on telling this story, but it's been a few years, and I'm not as freaked out by what happened as I used to be, so why not? I was only 19 at the time. I had moved across the country the year before college and had never had any issues driving home for the different breaks that we had over the school year. It was winter break and my mom really wanted me to come home that year to celebrate the holidays with my family, since I hadn't the year before. I agreed, but I really didn't want to leave my car for weeks. There had been a lot of car break-ins in the city that I lived in, and leaving my car to be vandalized, broken into, or stolen just was not an option to me. I told my mom that I'd be driving home, and she wasn't too happy about it, but understood. She offered to have my dad fly out and drive with me, but I didn't want them to go through all that trouble, and I thought a few days on the road by myself would be a good thing. I'd been having issues in my personal life, and having the time to think about it without any distractions seemed like a good thing to me. I packed up a few bags that wouldn't last me the next few weeks, and said goodbye to my roommate, who was pretty bummed out about me leaving. I headed out the door. Looking back on it now, my car probably wasn't worth what I went through during that drive home. It was a 20-year-old Honda Civic that had the propensity to break down a lot, and by a lot, I mean at least once a month. I just didn't have the money to replace it. I hopped in the car and was on the highway within a few minutes. I got some coffee before heading out of the city so I could stay awake as long as possible. 
It was still around 8 in the morning, so I figured I'd drive for around 10 hours before hopefully finding a hotel and settling in for the night. I had no definite plans and was following the fastest route home, which probably wasn't the best decision. I know now that I should have taken the route that didn't involve long stretches of highway with nothing but fields for miles and miles. I stopped a few times for bathroom and snack breaks, and by around 7 p.m., I was done. I'd been driving for almost 11 hours and didn't want to be a hazard to myself or others on the road if I kept driving while being that exhausted. I found a relatively nice hotel and got a room for the night, planning to continue my drive the next morning. That day, I'd be driving through parts of the Midwest, and it wasn't necessarily something I was looking forward to. The last time I drove through it, it was a lot of just flat land and cornfields, both things I thought were boring to look at on a long road trip. It was winter, though, so there was no corn. The weather could have been better, but I had no issues the day before, so I hoped that it would stay that way. The day went by faster than the previous one, and the sun was down before I knew it. By 6 p.m., I was feeling pretty good to keep going, so I passed through the next city and drove on. Around 7, I started hearing a knocking sound, and I wanted to cry when I realized that it was coming from my engine and it started to snow. My car began to creep along the road until I pulled to the side of the road where it completely gave out. It was getting cold without the heater on, and I knew that I had to get help very soon. I checked Google Maps to see if I was close to another city, but the next town, albeit a very small one, was still almost an hour away. I tried calling my parents to tell them what happened, but my service was completely out. I decided to use the emergency calls only button on my phone to call for help, and thank God it worked. The only problem was the closest officer that could respond was at least an hour away in the town that I mentioned earlier. I told the dispatcher that obviously I'd wait, and she instructed me to lock the doors and try to hide myself inside the car enough to where it looked as though no one was inside. Apparently, right where my car decided to die on me also happened to be a very sketchy section of the highway that wasn't very safe for stranded drivers, especially young women. I'm not gonna lie. Having the dispatcher tell me that made me feel physically ill. I felt like I was going to have a heart attack with how fast my heart was racing. I put up a sun shield in the windshield area and thankfully had three extra ones in the car from when I went car camping. I decided to put those along the sides and back windshield as well so no one could see inside. From the outside, it would look almost black. Around 30 minutes into me waiting, I started getting the feeling like somebody was watching me. Now, I tried convincing myself that it was just because of the situation that I was in, and that all the windows were covered anyway, so there was no way that that was possible. I wanted to shake it off, but the feeling just wouldn't go away no matter how much I told myself that it was okay. There was something inside of me telling me the situation I was in was about to get very, very scary. I turned on the screen on my phone and faced it in the direction of the windows, not knowing what I was about to see would traumatize me for years to come. At first, I felt some ease seeing only the reflection of the sunshield. I turned my phone towards the passenger side windows and in the small crack that wasn't covered, to my horror, a strip of window was visible. On the other side of the window was the face of a man pressed against the glass with a smile, staring directly at me. 
My first reaction was this blood-curdling scream. It was a sound that I didn't know that I even had the ability to make. It was like fear itself was manifesting in sound. It almost actually rang in my ears. The second the scream left my mouth, I watched as the man lifted his face from the glass and heard him begin to laugh. The most awful, guttural laugh I'd ever heard. Immediately, I heard the car move as the man violently tried the door handle to get access into my car. I was screaming and crying as he hurled himself around the car, howling like it was some animal. Between his laughing, it felt like he was taunting me in a way. I called 911 again and was screaming that I needed help now. The woman who answered the second time wasn't as friendly as the first I'd spoken to only 30 minutes prior. She kept yelling at me to stop screaming, otherwise she wouldn't be able to help me. I was crying, trying my best to calm down as the man just outside my car was putting me through this. She hung up on me, and I felt completely helpless. The only relief that I was feeling at the moment was the fact that he hadn't been able to break into my car. I called 911 again, hoping I'd get a dispatcher with more empathy. And thankfully, that was the case. A man answered and immediately took my distress into account and helped me calm down enough to get the information he needed. The officer had been sent almost 45 minutes before and now was only around 10 minutes away. I was told that they'd have him get to me as quickly as possible given what I was going through. I was hopeful, but that hope was ripped away when I heard the sound of what was obviously a rock being thrown at my windshield. It shattered just enough to motivate the man to get on top of my hood and start stomping the windshield until it was broken enough for him to reach a hand inside. I screamed and climbed into the back seat. I was trying my best to get out of reach of this very insane and clearly dangerous person. They started tearing the windshield out of the way, and his face was even scarier than it was the first time I saw it. I was paralyzed with fear as I watched him begin to climb between the glass into the car. I had no choice but to get out of the car and hope the officer was close by. I opened the door and turned on my phone's flashlight. I faced it toward the hood and was so relieved to see that he had become stuck. He was trying to climb out but wasn't able to. I then saw the beautiful flashing red and blue lights in the distance and heard the sirens as he drove closer. I started frantically waving him down, and he pulled up beside me. He was out of his car in seconds, and another police car was pulling up behind him only a few minutes later. I was placed in one of the cop cars and watched as they actually drew their guns out, demanding that the man climb out of the car. This crazy guy was screaming and thrashing his body around. One of the officers grabbed him by the ankles and pulled him out of the vehicle. The man tried biting him multiple times before being slammed to the ground and handcuffed. They put him in the back of the other car and told me more officers would be coming down to take pictures of the scene, and a tow truck would be on its way to tow my car. I was driven to the police station and gave my statement about everything that happened. I called my parents, who bought me a plane ticket home from the nearest airport, which the officers were nice enough to drive me to. I wish I could tell you the man who did that to me and even give a reason as to why, but he didn't. He was so mentally deranged that they said he wasn't even fit to stand trial. Eventually, I guess he was taken to some state mental hospital where the last I heard, he's still there. I wish that there was some justice for the hell that he put me through, and maybe some people would say there was, but to me, it wasn't justice. He isn't being punished, 
The memory of what happened punishes me every day. It's gotten easier to deal with as time goes by, but it'll always be there to torture me any time I'm reminded of that man in the window. I was driving my truck back home from my girlfriend's apartment. It was a stormy night, with heavy rain and darkness enveloping the town. Despite the adverse weather conditions, I wasn't too concerned. After all, my house was only a ten-minute drive away, and I had to work early the next day. All my work clothes were at my place, so I had no choice but to brave the storm. The power had gone out, leaving the streets in complete darkness. The only source of illumination was my truck's headlights, casting an eerie glow on the rain-slicked road ahead. The relentless downpour pounded on my windshield, and my wipers struggled to keep up, making it feel like I was driving blind. Yet I knew these streets like the back of my hand. Muscle memory guided my turns and calculated distances as I navigated the familiar route. I turned onto the road that led to my house, but almost immediately, a sense of unease crept over me. Something wasn't right. It felt as though my truck was floating, and I sensed moisture creeping in around my feet. Inside the cab, the lights flickered ominously. I peered out, and through my headlights, I could see the water outside rising steadily. Panic began to set in as my truck was slowly consumed by the encroaching flood. The current tugged at my vehicle, dragging it further into the watery abyss. Frantically, I unbuckled my seatbelt and attempted to open the driver's side door, but it wouldn't yield. Water was now seeping in rapidly, reaching my knees. I remembered my father's advice about not panicking in life-threatening situations. Taking deep breaths, I reached for a waterproof flashlight in my glove box. With trembling hands, I turned it on, scanning the dark interior for something to break the window. Unfortunately, I had recently cleaned out the truck and left my tools behind. All I had was my sweater, the small flashlight, and a pocket knife. Desperation compelled me to dial 911. However, I was greeted with a recorded message, informing me that all dispatchers were occupied with other calls due to the storm. The voice assured me that they would respond as soon as possible. The dispatcher's indifference only fueled my fear. Time was slipping away as the water continued to rise. The water level had now reached my belly button, and I was rapidly losing hope. Squatting on my seat, I struggled to keep my head above water. It was clear that most of the water was seeping in from the driver's side door. I grabbed my sweater and tried to use it as a makeshift barrier, but it proved futile. Seven agonizing minutes later, a dispatcher finally answered. I relayed my dire situation but they offered little comfort. They explained that many others were also trapped in flooding situations, and it would take at least 30 minutes for help to arrive. I pleaded for them to stay on the line, but they cited the overwhelming demand for dispatchers during the storm and advised me to call back if the situation worsened. I hung up, realizing that I couldn't afford to wait another seven minutes if things deteriorated further. Panic surged as the water reached my chest. My pleas to my parents went unanswered as I continued to record my voice messages, my shaky words filled with a mixture of desperation and resignation. Only ten minutes after my call to 911, the water had climbed to my neck, and I was convinced that my time was running out. With my cheek pressed against the roof,
tears streamed down my face. No one was coming to my rescue, and despair gripped me. Suddenly, the sound of an approaching engine broke through my despair. I hadn't expected anyone to notice my stranded truck in the darkness, but I screamed and flashed my light to draw their attention. Relief flooded over me as a boat pulled up alongside my truck. I directed my flashlight towards the person who jumped into the water next to my driver's side window. They had a window breaker and shattered it on their first attempt. Grabbing hold of my shirt, they pulled me out through the window. I gasped for air as they hoisted me onto the boat. Overwhelmed with gratitude, I thanked them profusely for saving my life as I took deep, shuddering breaths. An emergency blanket was wrapped around me, providing a much-needed sense of warmth and security. We continued to rescue others trapped in their vehicles before finally reaching an area where police and firefighters were waiting. I was transported to a hospital, but fortunately, I didn't have any serious medical issues. I felt immensely thankful to be alive. It was a harrowing experience, and I had come dangerously close to becoming a tragic statistic. The incident left me deeply disillusioned with my city's emergency services. On that fateful night, it was good Samaritans, not law enforcement, who had come to my aid. I hoped that no one else would ever find themselves in the same dire situation. But if they did, I prayed that someone would rescue them in time, just as I had been saved that night. In the months that followed, I battled nightmares of drowning. Even now, I felt a shiver of fear whenever I had to drive in a storm or venture out on deep water. I had attempted therapy a few times, but it hadn't provided the solace I needed, so I had eventually stopped. I longed for the day when I could finally move on from that traumatic night and banish its haunting memory from my life. I was grateful to be alive, but the scars ran deep, reminding me of the night I had come so close to losing everything. I had just completed a grueling 24-hour shift in construction and management. My workplace had no qualms about overworking us when deadlines loomed, and the promise of overtime pay often kept us going. As I drove home from the job site, the clock was nearing three in the morning and the road was empty, save for the occasional set of headlights in the distance. The exhaustion was taking its toll on me, and I knew I was being reckless by attempting to drive in such a state. Nevertheless, all I craved was my bed, and I pushed on. During the drive, my eyelids drooped dangerously several times, almost causing me to veer off the road. Just as my weariness seemed insurmountable, a chilling sight snapped me awake. There, on the side of the deserted road, sat a young girl, no older than seven or eight. I initially passed her by, but a nagging feeling in my gut prompted me to turn my car around and check if she needed help. I pulled up beside her, and her gaze met mine. Her eyes held a peculiar, unsettling intensity. I asked if she was okay or needed assistance, but she remained silent, her lips sealed tightly. My sense of unease grew stronger, and I reassured her that I meant her no harm, coaxing her to get into my car. She hesitated for a moment before finally complying. My plan was to take her to the nearest police station, hoping they could identify her and reunite her with her family. I made countless attempts to elicit information from her during the drive, but she remained mute, fixated on me with those unnerving eyes. The silence in the car was deafening as we continued down the dark, 
desolate road for another ten minutes. Then, unbelievably, it happened again. I spotted another child, this time a little boy, sitting on the side of the road. He too refused to speak, and without hesitation climbed into my car. I repeated my questions, but he responded with the same eerie silence, his gaze mirroring the girl's, locked onto me. Panic began to claw at the edges of my mind. I couldn't shake the feeling that I had unwittingly stumbled into something sinister. Were these children kidnapped and abandoned here? Was it some horrifying trafficking situation, or had they simply become lost? The question swirled in my mind, unanswered. Another fifteen agonizing minutes passed, and my worst fears were realized when I saw a car seat on the side of the road. I pulled over and with trepidation got out of my car. To my horror, a little baby was nestled inside, its age unclear but seemingly healthy. Its innocent eyes met mine, and I knew I couldn't leave it there. I placed the car seat in the back of my car and dialed the police immediately, relief washing over me as I got a signal. They instructed me to go to the nearby hospital and they promised to meet me there. I arrived at the hospital shortly after the call and carried the car seat inside, beckoning the children to follow. The receptionist was the only person there, and I frantically explained the situation. To my bewilderment, her response was a puzzled and confused expression. I motioned for the children to stand beside her, imploring her to help, but she seemed oblivious to their presence. My frustration mounted as she repeatedly asked if I was okay, completely ignoring the children and the baby in the car seat. I couldn't fathom why she couldn't see them or why she was so intent on my well-being when it was the children who needed assistance. As I was recounting the story to the receptionist, two police officers entered the hospital. I told them the same bewildering tale, but they too were unable to see the children standing right in front of them. I was utterly perplexed and growing desperate as they concluded that there were no children with me. Instead, they believed I was experiencing some form of mental episode. I protested, insisting that I had never had any mental health issues, but my pleas fell on deaf ears. I was admitted to the hospital under a 72-hour observation cycle due to my persistent hallucinations, as they deemed me a potential danger to myself and others. Their certainty was disconcerting, and I was convinced that they were the ones who were delusional. Over the next few days, I underwent numerous tests and evaluations to uncover the root of my bizarre experiences. Initially, they attributed it to severe sleep deprivation, a common cause of hallucinations. However, even after hours of sleep, the hallucinations persisted, raising suspicions of a deeper issue. I was scared and felt trapped in a nightmarish world. Desperate for answers, I called my mother, who came to the hospital and provided our family's medical history to the doctors. After the 72 hours elapsed, I decided to stay at the hospital, as I had no other explanation for what was happening to me. In the following weeks, the children continued to follow me everywhere. They watched me sleep, providing a strange comfort, but also serving as a constant reminder that something was profoundly wrong with me. The hallucinations, however, were no longer my sole concern. I began to experience speech difficulties and struggled to think clearly, further perplexing the doctors. This cognitive decline prompted further investigation, and during an MRI, one attentive doctor noticed a shadow. 
It turned out that I had a small but malignant frontal lobe tumor, compressing the optic nerve. Regrettably, its proximity to the optic nerve ruled out surgical removal. Nevertheless, the doctors remained hopeful that chemotherapy and radiation could combat the cancer cells, given that it had been detected at an early stage. I embarked on a course of chemotherapy and radiation, and as the weeks passed, the hallucinations diminished in frequency. Part of me began to miss their presence, as they had become strangely familiar companions. Most importantly, they had led me to the hospital, where my life-threatening condition was discovered early. I am still undergoing treatment, and while my official prognosis remains uncertain, I choose to hold on to hope. Without the eerie encounter on that fateful night, I might have never sought medical attention, and my life could have taken a much darker turn. Hope is my constant companion now, a beacon guiding me through the uncertainty that lies ahead. I drive part-time for Uber Eats as a college student, and it's a great gig that I can work around my school schedule. This eerie incident occurred one night after my classes, probably around 11 p.m. I didn't have class until late in the afternoon the next day, so I decided to stay up late and complete as many food deliveries as I could. I received an unusual grocery order to pick up from a 7-Eleven and deliver to an address about 15 minutes away. The directions led me through a few neighborhoods, eventually taking me to the back roads that led into a densely wooded area. As I approached the end of a gravel road, I glanced at the address on the app, which indicated that it was down this path. However, all I could see were safety cones and construction materials, with no streetlights to illuminate the way. With caution, I ventured down the path switching on my brights and carefully maneuvering through the obstacles until I reached the last turn. This section was even more unsettling, resembling a path more than a road. I consulted the map again, and it was clear that the address was indeed at the end of this mysterious path. I raised my head, peering into the darkness ahead. As my eyes adjusted, I started to discern a structure at the end of the path. It looked somewhat like a house, but there was an undeniable eerie quality about it. My senses tingled with unease, and as I scanned my surroundings, I began to make out more houses in the vicinity. The limited light from my headlights prevented me from seeing them clearly, but it appeared to be a community of newly built houses under construction. Considering this, I reasoned that the house marked on my GPS might be one of the few completed ones. I turned and proceeded down the path, pulling into an empty cul-de-sac with a lone house. Up close, it was apparent that the house was not entirely finished, although the front appeared nearly done, complete with a door. Despite the bizarre situation, I reminded myself that my job was simply to deliver the groceries and not to concern myself with someone else's housing situation. I parked my car, retrieved the grocery bags, and approached the front door. All the lights were off, and an eerie silence enveloped the area, making me increasingly uneasy. Placing the bags on the doorstep, I knocked, but there was no response. As I turned to make my way back to the car, something caught my peripheral vision. In the shadows near the edge of the woods, I saw movement. My heart skipped a beat, and I froze for a moment, staring into the dark abyss. Whatever it was had ceased moving, 
Panic surged through me, urging me to hurry back to my car. I reached the vehicle, started the engine, and as my headlights pierced the darkness, I saw a man standing exactly where I had seen the movement in the woods. His eyes were locked onto me, his gaze intense and unsettling. Without taking my eyes off him, I started to back out, but my anxiety had me gripping the wheel too tightly. I barely noticed as my car jolted backward, first at the rear tires, then at the front. The entire vehicle rocked violently for a moment. My adrenaline surged, preventing me from getting a good look at what had caused the disturbance. I hit the gas harder, getting off the path and onto the gravel road. As I entered the normal neighborhood, it became evident that my car was shaking and bumping, and there was no doubt I had several flat tires. I managed to pull over somewhere I felt safer and immediately called the police. They conducted a search of the address and the Uber Eats account, only to find that the address led to an unfinished, uninhabited property, and the account itself was a throwaway. The police did discover several large sharpened metal objects on the path, likely placed there after I had pulled in as an attempt to immobilize me. What the intentions of those individuals were, once they had me trapped out there in the woods, remains a mystery. Perhaps they aimed to rob me, or worse, but I was grateful I didn't have to find out. I was 17 years old and had just gotten my driver's license. Looking back, I admit I was the typical self-absorbed teenager, too impatient and reckless for my own good. It was a Friday night, and I was desperately trying to persuade my mom to let me take the car to meet up with my friends. She, on the other hand, was adamant about not letting me go, convinced that I was planning to go out drinking and drive under the influence. I kept reassuring her that I had no intention of doing anything like that, but she remained unwavering in her decision. In a fit of frustration, I uttered the words I would later come to regret. I hate you. Slamming the door to my room, I resolved to sneak out later that night, around 11 p.m. With my mom asleep in her bed and my dad out of town, I figured it would be easy to make my escape. Earlier in the night, I had already swiped the car keys, so as stealthily as I could, I crawled out of my window and onto the front lawn. My mom had forced me to install Life360 on my phone, a decision I now wish I had never agreed to. To avoid her tracking my location, I turned off the app, thinking I could fool her if she happened to notice I was gone. She was the type of mom who'd call the police if I didn't return when I was supposed to. I sent a quick text to my friends, asking where they were, and predictably, they had driven all the way to L.A. Despite being over an hour away from their location, I made the foolish decision to go after them. The traffic on the freeway was unbearable, so I decided to take some side streets, hoping for a faster route. Living in Southern California meant one thing for sure. Traffic, everywhere, all the time. As I continued driving, I became increasingly lost. Refusing to turn on my phone for directions, I sought to reach a freeway, hoping it would lead me back home. Time slipped away, and the later it got, the more disoriented I felt. I had to admit to myself, I was scared, and all I really wanted was my mom. I meandered through side roads, alleys, and sketchy neighborhoods, not giving a thought to my own safety. Then I turned down a narrow road and was met with a shock, a truck blocking my path, 
parked sideways as if deliberately. When I attempted to reverse, a man suddenly appeared, pointing a gun at my face and pounding on my window. Panic coursed through me, and I did as he instructed. He ordered me out of the car and shoved me to the ground. Another man rushed over and started kicking me relentlessly, each blow feeling like it might rupture my stomach. I begged them to stop, screaming for help. But a few others just stood by, watching the assault. Lying there, utterly helpless, all I wished for was my dad to miraculously appear and save me. I knew it was impossible, but the thought of seeing my parents again was the only glimmer of hope I had. The beating seemed endless, and I realized they believed I had passed out, though I hadn't. I lay motionless, my arms shielding my head and face. That was when one of them got the horrifying idea to stomp on my face. As soon as my arms moved, his foot came crashing down on my jaw. In that moment, the adrenaline coursing through my body dulled the pain, but I'd come to understand later just how excruciating it truly was. Eventually, the beating ceased. I guess they thought I was unconscious, but I wasn't. I was simply incapable of moving any part of my body. Flashes of light pierced through my closed eyelids, and I realized they were taking pictures of me, as if they were proud of their vicious act. They laughed as they searched my pockets, making off with my keys, wallet, and phone before driving away in my car. All I could think about was how much I wished I had listened to my mom and stayed home. I lay there, the pain slowly setting in. My jaw throbbed the most. It felt broken. With great effort, I managed to open my eyes in the dim light, only to see red staining the asphalt around me. I tried to lift myself up, but the agony was too intense. Tears streamed down my face as the horrifying realization washed over me. There was a significant chance I might pass right there, alone on a desolate street. The last thing I had said to my mom was that I hated her, but I didn't. I just wanted to see her more than anything, to have her by my side, getting me the help I so desperately needed, reassuring me that everything would be okay. I must have lost consciousness because the next thing I remember is paramedics waking me up asking for my name and what had happened. I was still sprawled out on the road as they prepared to load me onto a stretcher, with an ambulance nearby waiting to take me to the nearest hospital. I could barely speak, but I managed to utter my name before blacking out once again. It seemed like an eternity before I regained consciousness in the hospital, a week having passed since that fateful night. My jaw was wired shut, the result of the brutal stomp to my face. My mom was sitting beside my hospital bed, tears streaming down her face as I recounted the terrifying details of what I had endured. The police and doctors told me that it was likely part of some gang initiation, and that I was incredibly lucky to be alive. As they described my injuries, it became painfully clear how close I had come to losing my life that night. Multiple broken ribs, internal bleeding from relentless kicks to my torso, a broken jaw, nose, and various other facial fractures. The list was harrowing. But the most horrifying revelation was that my Achilles tendons had been severed. To this day, nobody can explain why they did that, or why I hadn't felt it happen. I underwent surgery on both my ankles, and even now, I face the prospect of more surgeries and extensive physical therapy before I could even think about walking normally again. 
I remained in the hospital for months before being allowed to return home. I couldn't help but feel foolish for my reckless decision. What had happened to me was the worst-case scenario of what could occur when a teenager takes their parents' car without permission. I'm not sharing this story to make you believe that disobedience leads to such horrors. It's far from common. Instead, I hope my experience serves as a reminder that sometimes, our parents do know best. They possess life experience, wisdom, and unconditional love that we should never take for granted. I'm a single mother and I know a lot of people will roll their eyes when they read that, but it's important to the stories, so please don't judge too hard. The story I'm about to tell you took place when I was in my late 30s, and my two daughters were 13 and 15. I had just gotten out of an intense custody battle with their father, but thankfully, I was awarded full custody due to his drug addiction and rocky financial status. My girls and I were so excited to be moving to another state, away from all the drama the custody battle had caused. There was a lot of choosing sides and blame being thrown around, even by my daughters, so we decided that getting out of such a toxic environment by moving was the best idea for us. It was early June and the weather had started to warm up. We had just packed up the last boxes in our house and decided to leave a few days before the moving truck, as we wanted to get settled in the house before all our stuff arrived. Even if there would be no furniture for a few days, we were fine with that. We said goodbye to our old house, which was a very emotional thing for us to do, and we set off. We were taking the fast route, and according to Google, it was only supposed to take a couple of days to get to the new house. We had the idea that we'd stay in a hotel for one night along the way, and that was super exciting for us. My girls loved staying at hotels like most kids do, and I loved seeing them happy after hours of driving. It was late afternoon, and we were ready to get out of the car and find a room to stay in. I checked every hotel in the area, every app, and there was nothing available. Literally not one room was free in any of the surrounding cities for another three nights. I called around, and apparently there was a huge kids' soccer tournament in town, one of the largest in the country. We decided to keep driving until we found something, but instead we were met with a stretch of road that had a lot of rest stops, but no hotels. We stopped at a gas station to get some gas, and noticed a few biker guys in the parking lot. As I waited at the pump, I noticed one of the men staring into the back seat of my car, clearly looking at my daughters, who were both asleep. I felt a chill run down my spine, and I instantly had this gut feeling to get them out of there. It just didn't seem like a great position to be in. A young mom alone with her teenage daughters. Not great. I didn't even wait for the gas to finish pumping. I took it out, closed the gas cap, got back in the car as inconspicuous as possible, and got back on the highway. I watched to see if they were following us, but they didn't, and I thought maybe I had just been a little paranoid, so I stopped thinking about it. The girls and I decided to stop at a rest stop. We felt like it was safe enough because of the time. When we pulled in, there were plenty of other vehicles and people around. I had my daughters cover the back windows with the blankets that we had brought with us, and we all fell asleep. At around 8 p.m., I had the intention of only sleeping for a few hours before heading off again, 
but I had failed to remember to set an alarm. Instead, I was woken up by the loud roar of a motorcycle pulling up beside the car. I don't know what it is about being a mom, but every sound I hear makes me wide awake in seconds when my daughters are around. I sat up and looked outside the window, and I was terrified to see the same men from the gas station only a few parking spots away. And they weren't alone. There were at least 25 to 30 of them now. I was fairly positive that they hadn't seen us, so I decided not to wake the girls. I didn't want to scare them. I started the car and turned on the headlights, but no matter how much I tried to pull out of there unnoticed, it just wasn't going to happen. Something in the universe wanted those bikers to see my car and recognize it quickly. The second my headlights switched on, every head turned and looked directly at us. I was hoping the men from the gas station wouldn't realize that they had seen us earlier, but of course that wasn't the case. I heard one of them yell out to his buddies that they knew us and that there were a couple of hotties in the back seat. I was immediately terrified, but also rolling my eyes because who even says that, especially about two teenage girls who were obviously underage. But then again, they didn't seem like the kind of people who would care about that sort of thing. I honestly thought that if I just drove away, it would be like the last time where they wouldn't follow, but now they were quick to follow right behind. I woke up the girls, and I wish I could have been one of those moms who sugar-coated things to save their kids from being scared, but there was no way to do that with what was going on. I told them that we were being followed by some scary men, and they stayed down where no one could see them, keeping the blankets on the windows. They both started freaking out and crying, and I understood as I sped down the highway. These bikers got more aggressive. They began throwing things at my car and swerving as they tried to run us off the road. I was trying my best to stay calm on the outside so as not to scare the girls any more than they already were, but on the inside, I was having a full-blown panic attack. I knew my main priority had to be maintaining control of my car. It was clear that if something happened, and they were successful in running us off the road, nothing good would come of that. They started yelling at me to just pull over and that they only wanted to chat. I continued to stare forward outside the windshield and not even acknowledge them and they didn't like that. They started calling me names, demanding I roll down my window. I did roll it down about an inch to try and plead with them to just stop and leave us alone, but there was no way they could hear me. We drove like that for at least five miles before entering the next city, and by that time, it was already two in the morning. Finally, I came to my senses and told my oldest daughter to just call the police. Through tears, she told them what was going on, I don't know what they told her, but she said that they were coming. Unfortunately, it just wasn't soon enough. I felt something hit the side of the car, and within seconds we were off the side of the road and headed for a tree. I slammed the brakes as hard as I could, and the car came to a very violent halt. We were all okay, but I started to wonder for how long, though. The bikers surrounded us and started pounding on the windows and pulling on the door handles while the car shook. The girls were screaming at the top of their lungs and begging me to make them go away, but there was really nothing I could do. I prayed to God that we would make it out of there, and thank God, he answered my prayers. We heard sirens in the distance and watched as the men all got back on their motorcycles, speeding away. We hugged each other and cried until the officers were standing at the doors of the car. They had to step out, and we explained everything. 
Now they tried to get in contact with the bikers around that area, but they weren't able to track them down specifically, at least not at that moment. To this day, I'm still terrified every time I see a group of motorcyclists. My girls are older now, with children of their own, and my biggest piece of advice to them is always carry protection. You just generally never know when you're going to find yourself in a situation as psychotic as that.